This week is the last episode of season one of the Standard Age podcast, but stay tuned sooner than later for season two to kick off. With that said, we end season one with guest Josh Herman, a ceramic artist based here in San Diego, California. We met while I was working at Allen Edmonds, and conversation just seemed to flow within minutes of meeting Josh. He is somewhat of a dry wit that alludes to a level of self-deprecation that I appreciate, while at the same time carries a certain nonchalance in his delivery that's somewhere between humility and confidence, which I also enjoy. This one takes several turns. We discuss his immersion in athletics as a child to undergoing and studying several variations of therapy, all while ceramics was coming and going for Josh. We talk about the idea how less teaching can actually make you a better creative, the ins and outs of scaling a business when you're a one-man band, and also the inner struggles with whether or not to go on with the business. Self-reflection and self-awareness are crucial elements to this episode, and how finding your tribe is so important, and taking yourself too seriously won't exactly make you Picasso, but your experience stands a better chance of doing just that. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Josh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's great. Great to be on your podcast. Yeah, thanks mm -hmm. for having me here in studio. Mm -hmm. um, let's start at the beginning. Sure. I say this in every episode. Okay. Um, where, do, where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I was born in New York City uh, to my parents, Marsha and Phil. I was an only child. Uh, they got divorced when I was five years old. And uh, so I was raised by my mother. I saw my dad on the weekends. He lived in Manhattan. She had me in Long Island. Uh, so I was, you know, a New York kid. I was eating, you know, like nice foods and you know, I was just like a foodie. And my dad was a big Knicks fan. We used to go to the Knicks games. He had season tickets. And, and I was good at sports. So I really started out as a sports kid. I was very talented at sports. And what particular sports? I was good at all sports. So I went to, I went to a place called Kutcher Sports Academy, which is in the Catskills. And they, it was an all sports academy. And, you know, you could take, they had everything there. So, you know, I was doing basketball. I was good at basketball and soccer and baseball, any sport. You know, when you're young, you haven't trained. I just was a good athlete. So I, I was pretty much good at all the things. But I think I was particularly good at tennis and um, soccer and basketball. Those are probably my three sports. So my dad loved that and he pushed me to be an athlete. And my mom was, I think, more apathetic about it. She worked and, and um, I saw him on the weekends and he was giving me, you know, trying to get me the best coaches and, and, and taking me to Florida to, to play with this guy with tennis and, you know, uh, tell, telling people what a great athlete I was. It was a lot of pressure, honestly, you know, it was a, little, a lot of pushing. Yeah, sure. And I did take art, of course, you know, just there were art classes in my school. I went to a public school in, in Great Neck, Long Island. But, and I was, you know, I think I exhibited some ability, but um, I never was encouraged to do more art. And so I never really even thought about it. I just, you know, it just was all I knew was being an athlete. So all through high school, that's pretty much what I did was sports. So when you say academy. Yeah. But you went to public school on Long Island. So what was the academy exactly? You mean Kutcher Sports Academy? Yeah. That was summer camp. 
summer camp summer camp got it yeah and so they sent he sent me to that camp for the full eight weeks every summer for like 12 years in a row all sports you know during the day you had different periods you have one hour periods you could pick what sport and then at night there was a league and then you had a you were in a league so it was just sports 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 all day do they still have this i've never I heard think of they this. do i think they do they do have sports camps i mean they they have individuals you know like well, sports camps. camps sure but like this is like school yeah for sports yeah yeah, it was pretty serious. I mean, it was pretty hardcore. I honestly, I hated it. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I really dreaded it, and it was not for me. And I was miserable going for the entire summer, every single summer. Um, but as they, an adult, like yeah. I, I think about this. This sounds rad. <laughs> well, you know, it's a cool concept, you know. But then you're away from your parents. I was a sensitive boy. Got it. And in retrospect, uh, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't quite my, you know, like fraternity, I guess. You know, it wasn't my nature, even though I was good at sports. So it wasn't the perfect fit for me. Um, and it was cool. It was just a little too much. You know, if you eat, like, ice cream sundaes, like, every single day, you know, you'd probably get tired of them, too, eventually. Right. right? Yeah. yeah. Too much of anything is unhealthy. Right. Exactly. Um, so you mentioned you're an only child. What, yes. did, what did your parents do? My mother worked in radio advertising. So she sold advertising for radio stations. And my father was a stockbroker and a money manager. Downtown? He, yeah. He grew up in the Bronx on Tremont Avenue, which was a very, very tough neighborhood with no money, had nothing. He was an only child. And he used to play stickball. He used to tell me about the stickball, you know, how many manhole covers could you hit the ball that was like the thing yeah. and, he play, and he played with Al Pacino Al Pacino was younger so Al Pacino was like the water boy you know like go get my water Al kind of thing no way yeah and so I heard a lot about you know how difficult it was to to live you know in the Bronx at that time and with sure. nothing so he was self-made and he was a pretty tough customer my my, my dad you know short yeah. short not not too short, you know. He was like five eight, but he wasn't large. But oh, I think he meant he, like short fuse. No, 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 no. He wasn't. No, he wasn't a short fuse. But you wouldn't want to mess with him, right? Yeah. So he was. I was. What I was saying is, he's, he's small-ish in stature, but you know, larger than life. La large and yes, in strength and like, you know, will willpower. So he he was a tough customer. Well, it's a tough business. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. You got to have some willpower yes. to do that for sure. Oh yes, he's a, he was a pit bull. Yeah. Yankee fan. Yep. Um, I, I have lots of stories. He used to like get, take, get, take me to Yankee Stadium. He took me and my stepbrothers to Yankee Stadium, the World Series. We didn't have tickets and we didn't have anything. And he got us in. And the gift of gab. The gift of a twenty dollar bill. Oh, I see. Yeah. The high five. Yeah. He <laughs> thought that he, he, he thought that all of life's problems could be solved with a twenty dollar bill. And he's mostly right, but um, yeah, he you know instead of handing the guy, the guy tickets, he you know hand him a hundred dollar bill or hundred right. dollars. Just let me through. He just you know put a hundred in his hand, and then we'd get in, and then he'd have to grease the usher and to get the seats, and you know, so he would operate like that. That's so like stereotypical New York, totally old, old New York. They don't really make them like him anymore. Tell you the truth, he was no. know, one of a kind. No, and that's just one story. I mean, I could t I could tell you like ten stories. You'll have some usher in Yankee Stadium now be like, "Where are you sitting?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a ticket. Yeah, that's not gonna work. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Exactly. So that takes you through high school, basically, right? So what uh, college? So then I went. I didn't know what I really wanted to do with myself. You know, I was good at sports, but I wasn't 
you know, going to be professional in any sport. So I went to a small business school in Boston, uh, in Wellesley, which is outside of Boston, called Babson. Yeah. And um, I learned quickly that, uh, you know, that wasn't for me. I mean, I wasn't really, wasn't an ideal situation, you know, being around kids that were, you know, solely focused on, you know, like money and business, business. And, and I don't think Boston was a great fit for me. And uh, it was cold. I mean, real cold. And I didn't like that. And um, so I um, ended up transferring uh, to a small school in Los Angeles called Pitzer College, which was part of the Claremont Colleges. I applied there. I applied to NYU, which I really wanted to go to because it was close to home. I was freaked out about going to another place I wasn't going to be happy with. So I got into NYU, and I also got into Pitzer, and uh, I just... I, my, my, like, my impulse was to go to NYU. That was like the safe thing. But I guess somehow I knew that Pitzer was, was the best you know, place for me. And I, so I went and I was very nervous. The first day I, uh, I got there early because I was a place kicker. I was still, I was a soccer player, but I was very good at place kicking. So I did that for the football team in high school. Right. So the football season starts the first semester. So I had to get there like two weeks before school started to, for preseason, for practice. For practice. Yeah. And so I got to the suite. By the way, is this good that I tell like long-winded, like I tell you stories? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I don't know how much information you want, but no, I you can edit this is out your whatever time. you want. No, yeah. this is your time. So I get to the, so I, it's a good story. So I get to the, so I get to the, to the, the dorm, you know, and I walk in and sitting in the common room. So there was a common room and then three rooms on one side and then three rooms on the other side. So sitting in the common room, you know, I walk with my bags are like three or four of the RAs, the resident assistants. They're there early also, you know to whatever they were doing as create organization or yeah, something. yeah 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 and um they're like oh yeah come on sit down so they had they had beers you know they were like drinking beers i mean it was like the middle of the day i don't know i forget what time it was noon or something like that they were drinking some beers it was a couple guys a couple girls and um i think they had a bong you know i think they were smoking weed and they were like you know come on sit down hang out and i started hanging out and I had a beer, you know, and I took a hit, and it was like... This is day one. Day one. Day, day, <laughs> not even day one. Day, this is like, you know, first 10 minutes. And I just, I could just feel that I, everything that I wanted was going to be California. That, that, that I found my place. This was not business school. No, this was not <laughs> business school, and this was not New York. It was just, it just felt like right for me and that I found, I knew in that first 10 minutes, you know, that that was, that I wanted to live in California and I was going to be happy at the school and then, you know, I was in a good place. So, so that was quite a, you know, like moment revelation right there. Like, wow, I'm feel, I feel something I never felt like in my life, just the, the, the attitude, the environment, just all of that. And so, um, so I ended up going to Pitzer which I loved is a very like liberal kind of not hippie trip, but it was, you know, on that end of the spectrum, um, kind of a place. And I was an economics major just cause I didn't know what I wanted to do. 
I ended up taking introduction to pottery or introduction to ceramics from, at, at Pitzer. So Pitzer's part of the Claremont Colleges. There's five schools. There's Harvey Mudd and Pomona and Pitzer. They're all schools that abut next to each other. I took introduction to ceramics at Pitzer, and I remember the, the, the professor sat down that night, and he did a demo. He started throwing cups on the wheel. And I hadn't even touched the clay yet, but I, I, I could feel, like, just watching him that I was very intrigued and that I felt that this was going to be... I could tell the feeling I was having that, that I, was, I was going to like doing ceramics and that it was going to be something that worked for me. And, um, and that, that's how I really found ceramics. And, and, and so I, I took ceramics. I think I took, like, second semester ceramics. And then uh, people started saying to me, you know, if you're into ceramics, you have got to go to Scripps. Scripps was an all-girls college that was right across the street from Pitzer. Lucky, luckily enough for me, you were allowed to take any of your courses, all of your major, at any of the colleges. Because they were all in the same They were all part of the Claremont colleges, yes. So I, I, and because this teacher that was the ceramics teacher at Scripps, was like a famous guy. This is what they told me. Paul Soldner. You've got to check him out. So now is is he still around? He passed away like three or four years ago. Okay. He was at the end of his his Tenure. professorship. He was like seventy two at the time. I was probably the last student who went through with him. So I was lucky, yes. Yeah. And uh, so I went over there and it was just a perfect it was perfect for me. That his he was a really great guy and really interesting, and his teaching philosophy was was just in line with with who I was and who I am. And so, what was that like? So, he did not he he did not uh, he he used to, he told a story about when he was in art class. He did a painting, and the teacher said to him, "Oh, look, Paul made a fried egg. It was a sunrise." And he decided in that moment that he was like never going to do art again. You know, he was so you know discouraged. Yeah. yeah, and um, so he, I think his philosophy was that um, he, he was very influenced by Zen. You know, Zen and Eastern philosophies, and and um, I think that his the way he mm -hmm. taught was like the best teachers are the ones that you sort of like don't even know are there. And so he would teach through example. He worked in the studio with the other students. He made things, not in, you know, back in the back. You know, he had a table in the main studio and, and he would work and, and um, you know, a class would be two and a half hours and he'd do a demo for like 10 minutes and then that would be class. That's genius. Yeah, and then he'd be like, somebody paid for you to be here, but I don't care. You can come or go. Somebody, somebody paid for you to be here, so if you want to hang out, you can, or you can do whatever you want. I don't so really he really care. did want to make art at the end of the day and found a way to get paid to make art well, and only teach for 10 minutes. Well, I, th I think, that, I think that, that that's true, but I think there was a method to, you know, to that. And I think his, his feeling was that um, he, was, he was helping people find their own motivation, right? right. And, and allowing people their own like have to have freedom to explore and that that interest would come more authentically more naturally if left given the freedom to to you know find themselves yeah. so he didn't really care you know and he didn't feel that he should be critiquing work you know who's to say like this is good 
Like, I might like it, but you may not, may not like it. So it's not, I don't think it's my place to say this is good or this is bad. So he didn't grade that way. He just graded by volume. If you made 50, 50 pieces on the wheel, you'd get a, you know, a C. If you made 75, you get a B. If you made 100, you get an A. He didn't care what anything looked like. It was just the amount of work that you made. Do you think that's because it, equating quantity with, uh, or volume rather, mm -hmm. with a better grade, better meaning, mm -hmm. you know, A's. Mm -hmm. the A's, is that because he knew that practice makes perfect kind of thing? And I think so. I think it wasn't about if you made good things. I think it was about just making things, you know, and right. just having that interest and spending the time in the studio and... And uh, he didn't want people to feel insecure, like, I, I don't have talent, or I can't make nice things. He didn't want the pressure of, you know, are my things good? He just wanted people to experiment, try things, uh, fail. Um, I think that's that so sort of interesting, and given that he was discouraged by a teacher and then became a teacher. Yes. He was Mennonite. And so it was a very like loving, he, he claims it was a very loving, supportive environment that he, he grew up in. And, and, and he just realized in that moment where he was you know, critiqued by that teacher that that did not support his interest. It, did support, it didn't support his confidence or his wanting to explore you know, clay and being, or being creative as an or even Yeah, I was going to say any even, kind of creativity, even creativity. Any in kind itself. of creativity. So um, he... You know, I think that was a real gift that he passed on to students. And he was a fun guy. So, I mean, you know, uh, we would have parties. So every Thursday night was um, uh, graduate seminar, which was for the graduate students. So there was a graduate program, considered one of the top graduate programs. And he had the graduate students in amongst undergraduates. So that was a real great thing because we were learning from the graduate students. True. And that graduate seminar was would go to his house, which was super cool, near the college. He did bonsais, he, everything he did with his own hands, that was like his thing. He didn't, he didn't think he should be we should be hiring people to build our own house. Like you should learn how to build your house and make things, like be self-sufficient. So he did bonsai and he knew how to do all kinds of cool things. And so we'd go over to his house and then we'd have a potluck. Everybody bring food and beer, you know, socialize. So it truly was a community. Totally. That's awesome. Totally. And then um, after dinner, he would do some topic. Sometimes it was related to clay. Sometimes it wasn't. It could be how do you photograph your work? How do you, do sh how do you ship your work? Like how do you build a shipping crate? Um, it could be how do you make wine out of dandelions? You know, he knew how to do all kinds of cool stuff like that. You know, he'd just teach us things that he knew how to do that, that were, like, super cool. And then, you know, he'd do slides and he'd talk. And maybe that'd be 20 minutes, half an hour. And then, and then after that, it, that, that, that was done. And then it was, like, a hot tub party. You know, he had, he had a big <laughs> hot tub that he made. And we would all jump in the hot tub and, you know. What was it made from? Concrete. And he had a big shrub. Around, it was a triangular hot tub, and he had a big shrub around it, so there was like some privacy, and it was cut like a, it was cut like a, um, like a, looked like a, like a dragon. I guess we called it Nessie, you know, it had like a little head. Yeah. yeah, and and um, no, it was totally cool. I mean, a big hot tub, you know, like 20 people, you could go go in there, 
That's and, insane. Yeah. So, I, you know, it was just, it was fun. And then in the studio, he had all kinds of kilns. That's another thing. In most of the schools, I think it's very restrictive. Like, you have to uh, pass a certain uh, uh, standard before you can fire a kiln. And you have to, you know, uh, it's very restricted. You know, you have to do blah, blah, blah before you can mix a glaze. Paul didn't have any of that. There was a sign-up sheet. If you wanted to fire a kiln, just go ahead and try. And <laughs> just don't burn yourself. Yeah. So sometimes, in, like I remember in the beginning, I would put some pieces in a kiln with some of the grad students, and I'd learn how to fire this kiln. And he had all different types of kilns. Salt kilns, high-temperature salt kilns, low-temperature, uh, all kinds of you know, kilns that you could try. Raku kilns. Um, and it was all there that, to use as you liked, when you liked, you know pretty much without restriction. So I remember being there at night with friends. You know, we'd drink a beer, we'd be making pottery, and we'd have the raku kiln going, you know, and I'd come back to my room at, you know, midnight smelling like smoke, and my friends would be hanging out, and I'd, I'd come back. And, you know, I just, I loved the environment. It was fun. We were hanging out with people. Uh, Paul was great. He used to have big parties where, you know, uh, people up from outside the school would come. And he was just kind of a larger-than-life guy, and, and we all loved him, and, and um, it was just fantastic. I loved it. So That's I really amazing. fell in love with it, and I really credit Paul with my approach to Clay, and he really gave me a gift. So that was just a super fortuitous thing that I landed, you know, there at that time. With Paul at the end, it was just a perfect situation. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And, and this all stemmed from you traveling from New York to California, which yeah. historically, at least in your life, it seemed you didn't want to be away from home. Right. And then you got as far away from home in the continental United States as you could almost. Yes. And I which stayed is here. Just the <laughs> irony behind yep. that as well. Yeah. That's so amazing. Well, I think I was scared to be away from home. I wasn't happy, but I was scared. So that's but you what found was driving your, me. You and know? then you found your community. Then I found it. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's yeah. super cool. Yes. Yes. Um, which honestly takes us. Okay. So you're, you're graduating, right? Yes. At this point. Yes. What were some of your initial jobs out of college? Or were you immediately doing your own thing? So. I moved to San Diego right after college. I found a little apartment uh, in Pacific Beach on Law Street with a couple of buddies of mine. So my, my friends, n not the ceramic friends, like I had a group of friends, and they were like Rasta types, like they had dreadlocks, you know, a Jewish guy, you know, a black guy, you know, an assortment of guys, but they all, we all liked reggae. and. Uh, they got jobs at a law firm as document clerks, and they were not required to cut their dreads. That was a big deal because the guys from the year before that graduated that were our friends worked there. The firm loved them, and they, the firm said, you can, you know, do you have friends that can do the same job, which were my friends with the dreadlocks. So they came down. We rented a place together on the beach. They worked at the law firm, and then I had a studio at the house. And we would go surf and such. So we, you know, I was making basically making things that first year to two years. I think we lived in that house. Oh, that's amazing. So yeah. right out of college. Right out of college, I just kept making ceramics. That's great. Um, they worked at the law firm. Uh, I had a dog. We surfed. Uh, you know, we had fun. 
And uh, that lasted for a couple of years. And then I applied for graduate schools. I decided I was going to go to graduate school for ceramics. And Same school? Mm, I could have, but I... Well, actually, I think Paul had retired at that point. So I ended up going to University of South Carolina for graduate school. Gamecocks. The Gamecocks. <laughs> wow. I know you're from North Carolina. So. so back across the country. Back across the country. And the way that happened was there was a woman who was not a student at Scripps, but she was a ceramic artist. There were some people that were there as artists just to be around Paul, and he invited like you know artists to come work there. And she, she was a, an older woman that uh, I was friends with, and sh her, she had a friend who was the professor at University of South Carolina. I see. And she said, listen, you should apply to University of South Carolina. I think it could be a good situation for you. I know, I know her, this woman, and you know, give it a, give it a whirl. So I applied there. Uh, I, I got into University of Michigan at the time. Actually, I didn't get in. I was the second person. I was not. I was not. I did not get in. And then they called me and said the person that they admitted is declining our invitation. And you're like, we would like to have you if you would like to come. Um, I thought I was at that point just going to South Carolina, and so I flew to Michigan. And it was kind of a rainy day, and I ended up just going to South Carolina. So um, plus you had the cold, right? In right. Ann Arbor. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I flew in, and it was like a gray, rainy. If it was sunny, I think that would have made a difference. So I ended up going to South Carolina, and I was the graduate um, graduate assistant. I had a stipend. I had a full scholarship plus a stipend. You know, they paid me to, to work as the, you know, firing the kilns and assisting the sh mixing the glazes and doing all the so they were the paying you to go there basically which was a fairly common thing oh, it wasn't okay. like a like a, a super unusual it was a good deal you know yeah but um somewhat common i think for it's very right now it's i think it's more competitive even then it was competitive to to get into graduate school for ceramics they only probably these programs would only take one or two and they might have 30 or 40 applications so it wasn't easy to get into some of these programs you know got it so it was a good deal and I went down there, and uh, it it just did not work. Like it just it, it just did not work, you know. And uh, I could, at one point in my life, I could blame it all on, you know, the faculty and the school. But I think, m realistically, I was equally to blame, you know, for that whole situation not working. I was, you know, 24 or something like that, and I had just come from Paul Soldner's program, you know, which was very unique. And this was a more like standard kind of like program. And I don't want to say bad things about her. I don't even need to say her name, you know. It's fine, you know. And it just, we didn't get along. It wasn't a good fit. I, I did not feel it was a good situation for me. I didn't handle it that well. And so uh, I ended up leaving after one year. Just wasn't a good fit. So you gave it a full year, though? I gave it a year. 
And an I, acad- academic year. Yes. Got it. Yes. And I, I made a lot of things. I had my own private studio. Um, but it was, very, it was a very painful, you know, experience. And uh, it was a very, very bad experience. You know, very difficult. I don't want to say bad experience. I don't want to, you know, put a value judgment on it. But it was a very difficult thing. It was very painful. And I left after a year on bad terms with, with the, you know. The university. Yeah, pretty much. The, or at yeah. least the program. Yeah, the, the, art, the art program. And I went to New York. I had, my dad lived in New York, so I went to New York. And it was, I was in such a bad place from that whole experience that I threw away my tools. I threw away all my books. I threw away all my formulations. I took all the work that I made. I threw it all away. I just totally washed my hands of everything ceramics. I had an apartment full of ceramics. You know, I just made a ton of stuff, and I just dumped it all, smashed it, and put it down the incinerator in the building with a hammer (laughs) i'm sitting here with my mouth open i know just like baffled yeah it was that bad you know i'm not saying it's not warranted i'm saying yeah that no that i was in a bad that's remarkable that yes yes i think you know when you're 21 or 22 you're just starting to become an individual, like a grown-up person, you're starting to learn about your own, or you're starting to see your own patterns of behavior, your own psychologies, you know, your neurosis, your, your, your feelings about, you know, your deep feelings about relationships, authority. Um, Just becoming the more world. self-aware. You know, you don't realize when you're a teenager... I don't know if you really, or at least for me, I wasn't learning about myself in that way. You know, things are taken care of for you. You're in a structured environment. You know, yes, there might be issues, but you're not quite mature enough to to be self-reflective in that way. You know, you're just trying to deal with high school or junior high school. 100%. Or college. You're partying, you know, you're, you're drinking at night and, you know, chasing girls or whatever you're doing that's that's not being self-reflective, right? Then you kind of get out into the world, and then all of a sudden you start seeing, you know, oh, um, I have certain beliefs about, you know, relationships. I have certain beliefs about this and like that. And I think that that whole experience with South Carolina really you know, brought me to my own like inner struggles and my own limitations depression, uh, all the things that, that, you know, I had inside me kind of like just came, came out. And I think that I was in a bad place, you know, as a person and I needed to, um, you know, deal with it, you know, uh, you know, look at it and, and such. So, um, I got rid of, I got rid of, you know, all of my things. And I remember, going to the office with my dad he his office was in the world trade centers at the time so i remember spending you know, I don't know four months or something like that in there 
and just sitting there while like he had two desks and he was trading and I had worked on the floor of the exchange. I had experience with the stock market. You know, when I was like in high school, he got me a job on the floor of the oh, exchange. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay. So I had some like experience with that and I was pretty good at math. So, you know, it was a pretty good fit and I, I knew a little bit about the stocks and, and so, you know, we used to sat, sit there and look at the screens and make calls and so forth. I, I really just didn't know what I wanted to do. I was kind of disoriented. Just filling the time. Filling the time, you know, airing out after South Carolina. And I always had like a secondary interest in cooking. My mother cooked and, you know, I tell people cooking is not really much different than ceramics. You know, you work with your hands, it's creative. Um, it's, it's really not that different. So I'm not, you know, not surprised that I had an interest in food. I always sort of had a secondary interest in it. And I casually inquired about like a cooking school and, you know, in just trying to figure out who I was. So I, I think what had happened was I had contacted a cooking school in New York City. It was a vegetarian cooking school. It was considered like one of the best cooking schools in vegetarian cooking schools in the country. Well, it was probably one of the only ones at the yes. time, maybe. Yes, yeah. yes. It's called Natural Gourmet Vege Vegetarian Cooking School. Because this is what year? Um, so, so I graduated college in 91. So this is probably like 95. And so I must have just called and inquired, and they had me on their mailing list or my, the contact list. And so while I was at the office one day, I got a phone call from a woman who was from the school and she said oh you know we'd love to we'd love to um show you the kitchen and why don't you you know why don't you just come over and check it out you know she was very slick and before i knew it i was doing this i was enrolled in a four-month chef's training program which i did and i and i loved it it was a great program i met my wife there so that was that was probably the best reason you know, the best thing that came out of that program. Certainly a bonus. Yes. And it was a good transition for me, you know, coming out of the ceramics and the bad, bad feelings. And I, it was a positive, you know, it was a win for me. And I did food for a couple of years. I cooked privately. I worked in a couple of restaurants in New York. I got into pastry. I liked pastry because it was kind of sculptural. And I worked in uh, Oriel, which is kind of a fancy restaurant in New York. And the pastry, I, for one day I worked in there and the, the, the pastry department, I went down there and they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff and I just thought it was cool. So I did pastry and this is, some things happened with that. But anyway, I did that for a couple of years and at the same time I befriended uh, a man named Gary Eisenstadt who was a teacher at the cooking school. And he was a really interesting guy. While he was done food, he also was studying different types of therapies, psychotherapies, um, that he was using in work that he was doing with people. You know, hypnotherapy was like one of the things. He had done the forum, and he had done a, a, a few things. Um, and he called it radical sanity. And he said to me, hey, why don't you come in and do do a session, check it out, and... Uh, you know, I, yeah, sure, you know, I would love that, you know. So I went in there and I started to work with him as a client. And it was really, it was great because it was the first time that I really started to do like self-exploration, started to look at myself. I started to learn that I was, you know, I had some real 
issues. Uh, I was depressed. And he was the first one who really helped me, you know, with that. And I think he was a bit of a father figure to me that, that uh, my father wasn't. So, and we developed a relationship. We had uh, done things together. He would invite me to his house. We traveled to India together. He used to go to India on a regular basis. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he introduced me to, to India. Uh, we did motorcycle trips together. I mean, we were good friends. Oh, and that's awesome. Yeah. What were you riding? BMW motorcycles. Like GS, Enduro yeah. bikes? Yeah. Yeah. We had a GS, we had like an R, like a basic, you know, we did a trip around the country. Awesome. And then after some period of time, he said, you know, why don't you start, why don't I start training you to be, to be a therapist, you know? You could be sort of like my apprentice. And I thought, wow, okay, yeah. Maybe, maybe I could do that. I mean, it really had a big effect on me as a person. You know, I really grew and I, the word healed comes, but you know, there was changes, you know, in me and it really opened my eyes to a lot about myself. So I said, sure, you know, I didn't, again, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. So I just said yes and I started to you know, study this radical sanity with him. And I did a hypnotherapy training and I did the forum and I went to uh, Gay and Kathleen Hendricks in Santa Barbara and did some of their trainings, body-centered psychotherapy. And I went to Portland and I did the process intensive, which I loved, uh, which is kind of a, a different type of, of process-oriented psychology, which was right up my alley because it was, you know, process-oriented. So I did all these things. And so over what time period was all of this? Because you, like you did a lot. A couple okay. it was so a couple like two years. Yeah, a couple years at the time. I was starting I started to see uh clients. I had not gone to graduate school. I didn't have uh you know, I wasn't an MS or social worker or anything like that. I hadn't done any of those things. He he designed like a formal training that I, another gal from the cooking program did, and then a few other people did. So it was like a radical sanity uh, program. So we were all seeing clients, I mean, maybe like six of us. And, but Gary and I were like the closest. And then we had gone to India a couple of times. And then he said, I'm going to go to India and you just work with clients and then we had talked about a lot of different you know we always bandied about like maybe we'll run trips to india and take people and and crazy enough i dropped him off at the airport he was going to india and i got a call three days later they found him dead in a hotel room in india he od'd heroin overdose yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I knew he had done like he had done heroin, you know, and um, I knew he had dealt with that and he had some tough stuff going on in his life. But that was really that was a very you know, difficult thing for me. Yeah. Because he was like a father figure to me and he was the first one who really, you know, 
helped me and, you know, like loved me unconditionally. And it was, you know, that was really, that was a really hard thing for me. And so I was living in San Diego at the time. I had lived in, I went, I moved to San Francisco for a couple years and I didn't like it. I wanted I don't know, San Diego was better for me, less traffic and just whatever. Gary was living here, so I moved to San Diego, and then that happened, and that was right about, no, so what happened was I, I went to India with his son, and I brought his ashes back. He wanted to be his, his ashes, like, put in the Ganga River, which was the river in the, in the Himalayas, and so I did this thing with his son, and we went to the we went to the mountain, and and um, we put his you know ashes in the river, and and then at, right at that point I was thinking you know I want to you know be in relationship, I want to you know be with a woman, one person, and when I got back I called Rachel. Rachel and I had broken up for some period of time, and I called her. I hadn't seen her in a while, and then that's when we got sort of like back together. And I, I got her to come out to San Diego. Rachel, obviously, my, your my wife. My current wife, yeah. So we got back together. I was still doing therapy. And um, I met a man. His name is uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Lehrman. And he was a big, or he is a big, um, uh, he, a, a very brilliant therapist. And I started working with him as a client, and he started to guide me on how to like reinforce my therapy. And I ended up doing this training, uh, and then working in this method called Hakomi, which is it's a presence-centered, mindfulness-based psychotherapy. It's using your in-the-moment experience as a way of studying self and who you are. And um, it, it was very natural for me. So I did the training. It was in San Francisco. I used to fly up to San Francisco once a month. Jimmy was sort of like guiding me. He was brilliant. Like he was on a whole nother level from Gary. Gary was just kind of figuring things out. Jimmy, Jimmy like wrote books and Jimmy's super, super brilliant guy. Great guy. Still, still in my life, you know, um, really, really interesting guy. Uh, but he pushed me to do the Hakomi training, which was a fantastic thing for me. I, I saw clients and I practiced for three or four years and I was right at the point where I had to get my degree. Like if I wanted to be a therapist, I was gonna have to get you know, a master's degree and get certification. And there's a, whole, there's a whole story why I decided to not do that. But the short of it is I wasn't completely satisfied sitting in the office working with clients doing you know this type of therapy with people something was missing for me and there was some struggle in in being the therapist and doing that so I decided in that moment after 10 years of doing this whole therapy track that I wanted to get back into ceramics so that's the 10-year break I took a 10-year break and I became and I did this therapy thing now the Hakomi training which I did for I was in there for t two years and then I was a like staff member for two years you know assisting new students coming through so I had advanced pretty far in 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 the whole um, Hakomi track the training is about sitting with people like how do you sit with someone like the nuts and bolts of sitting with someone and being with someone and in essence, the Hakomi training is 
you're doing a lot of therapy on yourself because you're doing a lot of practice sessions. You know, you're a client. I mean, you're a therapist, but you're also a client, and you're doing a lot of training. I would call it like personhood training. There's certain principles that Hakomi that Hakomi is like nonviolence and organicity and and um, mindfulness. And these principles, like you begin to embody those principles as a person. And that's what the method is about, and that's sort of like who you become. So there's a lot of personal transformation and growth that happens when you go through the Hakomi training. So my point is that after that 10-year period, I was basically a new person, like a different person, a completely different person. Uh, you know, more developed, more self-aware, had dealt with a lot of the things that I was pretty much unconscious about you know, when I was in South Carolina, before I had done any of this. So I decided I was going to get back to clay. And my, my first goal was to be an artist, as just make things and establish myself. And then my second goal was to, was to teach and maybe integrate ceramics and some of the therapy work, you know, some of the Hakomi stuff that I had done. Yeah. Um, so I got back into clay, and I was like a totally new person. And it was great. It was that was a really interesting process to, to get back in the studio and to work with a new awareness and to have a different mindset and to make things. And you know, I just was happy. You know, I was happy making things again. This week's episode is brought to you by Passion Fine Jewelry, located in Solana Beach, California. Owners Tim and Jana Jackson provide you with some of the finest independent watches while also carrying a wide array of fine jewelry. Tim is GIA certified and they have a goldsmith on staff for all of your custom needs, resulting in a warm, welcoming customer service experience with a level of knowledge that's truly second to none. Pay them a visit the next time you find yourself in Southern California or visit them online at passionfinejewelry.com. Tim also has a blog, independentintime.com, that allows for a deeper dive into all things horology. So check that out as well. Now back to my conversation with Josh. Well, let me ask you this. How did your products change? So say the stuff that you made in college, mm -hmm. right out of college, mm -hmm. like what were some of those pieces that you made then and how did they compare to the, this new you? Were they different, similar? I think it was different, not completely different, but... So what did you make right after college? I mean, I was, I was in, a, in a graduate program. I was making art pieces, but I, I couldn't really speak much to what I was making. I, didn't, I don't think I knew what I was doing. I was doing something. I was making things. I was trying to express myself, and I was, I was trying to you know, be authentic in my expressions, but I, I didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't really know what my work was about. I, it was funny. When I finished that first year of graduate school, I was trying to grok in words and what am I doing and what I came up with was that my work was about healing somehow like healing myself healing other people I didn't really know how I, I before I went to graduate school I had done a shiatsu training program which was like um, five element theory I don't know if you're familiar with that but Chinese like acupuncture they talk about energies in the body um, you know, air, fire, water, and they, they characterize the different energies. And so I knew a little bit about that, and I felt like working with ceramics was 
you know, fire, air, and water, and all those things. And I saw that there was some like sort of relationship, and I knew I was working with the like the energies of nature in trying to work with ceramics. And I just felt like I was doing something that was like a healing-related thing. That was about as much as I could say about it at the time. And then when I came back, I just had a much more you know, connected view of what I was doing, a much more like sort of sophisticated. I wasn't as, um, uh, I, I guess, unconscious. I think my work just became more clear. I was more prolific. Um, my work became more, you know, sort of defined. And I, so, like, yeah. what physically were you making after college? Like, were they more abstract pieces? Or Every, I, they... I was always abstract, which Got is it. the funny thing. I always was abstract. I, I always, Paul made abstract things, and I made abstract things. So I always was an abstract artist. And I think that goes to, like, more of that, like, I'm more of a feeler, more, I'm, I'm, I'm not a head guy. I'm, like, a heart guy. I'm a body-centered person you know Hakomi is a body-centered psychotherapy it's a mindfulness kind of thing you know what's happening in the moment you know what are you feeling and what is your experience at any given moment and that I always have been that that's just by my nature so that's who I was more visceral than cerebral yes got it yes and that's what abstract art is you know in my opinion it's that's and that's what my work is about it's it's about you know circumnavigating the thinking rational mind which I don't feel is who we are I think who we are is is is, is a deeper a deeper part of ourselves it's it's what we feel in the body is more of the truth of who we are in any given moment because you can't fake that can't fake that so people get stuck in the head and I think that's one of the problems with like this our culture eastern cultures are more you know body centered being being centered is i think that we're very intellectually oriented even even in the art world it's very conceptual so art is about the concept of your art talk about your art you know what is the concept like what are you trying to say i hate going to a piece and i know that i'm supposed to be figuring out what is the commentary of that piece what it means yes i don't right. like that i don't feel that's you know art's highest you know like purpose you know i think it's something else and it's it's um well i don't know i can talk all about you know what my art is about also but um well let's rewind then yeah. uh, to okay so after your 10-year break mm-hmm what about your approach changed in making art or was it just well, you were more in tune to the feeling aspect as I think opposed I, to yeah I just think I I just got back into it just a freer person I don't think what I made was really that much different I just think I was more consciously connected so I, I was able to go from one thing to the next thing to the next and to to be viscerally connected to a sense of enjoyment and to to knowing, okay, I want to make this next, and, and I want to do this, and, and I think that my sculptures became more sophisticated because I was more connected to myself. I was um, more conscious about myself, so I think my art just was, uh, uh, it was like a whole nother level of evolution of, you know, the, the sophistication of the things that I was making. Now, sophistication meaning in its construction? Yeah. Or not in its visual expression? Yeah. yeah, yeah, like I think if you saw some of the work I made before, you, you might think it's cool. I don't know. I just think my work was more expressive and more 
uh, it's just a higher level of authenticity, I guess is, is cool. what I could say. Yeah. But I don't, I don't think it was, I think you could see the work before and see the work afterward and say, okay, yeah, it's the same artist. And you were selling pieces borderline out of the gate or like when, when did this become a business? Okay. So this is, this, this is actually a good, a good story. So when I first moved back to San Diego, right, I was in San Francisco. I decided I want to live in San, San Diego. Gary was still alive. I found an apartment on, the, on Balboa Park. It was a cool apartment. And Gary always encouraged me, live big, you know, like it's a nice apartment, like costs a little bit more money, get it. You don't know when, you know, you don't know how long you're going to be here kind of thing, right? So like, you know, enjoy yourself, live your life like that. Okay. I needed to get furniture. So I started looking around at furniture. I ended up strolling into like a shop on Park Boulevard. It was a modern, like vintage modern shop. I just liked the furniture. I didn't know it was modern or anything. I just thought the furniture was cool. And I ended up buying an arc lamp. It was called an arc lamp. It was, it was a marble base, like a rectangular marble base, and then a piece of metal that kind of arced up about seven feet into the air, and then, at the, and then it arced over, and then there was like a, like a round globe fixture on the end. Well, that's a very iconical lamp, you know? And I, I just thought it was cool, so I bought it. And then I bought um, like a Scandinavian teak dining set, which I liked. And I started getting into this type of furniture, and I started to learn a little bit about modernism. I didn't really know much about modernism. All I knew is I liked the furniture. Well, there was another shop in Little Italy called Boomerang. And I started to go in there and become a customer. And the owner of that shop, his name is Dave Skelly. And I started to, I guess, just buy some things just because I was attracted to it. And then Dave basically saw my work. I was living in Point Loma in a house with my wife and our kids, and I was working out of the garage. When I got back into clay, that's where I started, in the two-car garage of my house in Talbot. Started making things. I wasn't selling. I wasn't showing. I wasn't nothing. I was just making stuff that I was getting off on. And I made a lot of pottery, and I was making little sculptures. I was full of energy. I just made a lot of stuff. And Rachel is working? No. Uh, was Rachel might have been doing a little bit of cooking. She didn't... I told, I told Rachel before she came out and moved that I just... I didn't really want, like, a big career woman. I wanted a mom for my kids, you know? <laughs> Got it. I didn't, want her to, I didn't want a wife that had, like, you know, an attorney who was going to be gone 10 hours a day. Right, you know? right. And she was cool with that. So, so that was like our agreement. As long as the understanding's there. That right? was our agreement, right? <laughs> she was totally cool with it. So Dave came over, it, it, not exactly, somebody else came over that knew Dave, who knew about ceramics, who worked with Dave, and was just like, his name was Brian, and he like walked into my garage, and he was like, just mind blown. Yeah, he was just like, whoa. I didn't think anything. I was just making my stuff. You know, I didn't really think about it. And I didn't have any texture glazes. I was just, I had a little kiln. I was just yutzing around with regular glazes. I have a couple pieces over there I could show you that from that period. And he was just like, oh, whoa, you know. He told Dave, and then Dave saw my stuff. And then Dave was like, You're, why don't you bring some of your stuff into the shop? Boomerang. Boomerang. Boomerang has vintage, modern, and current 
newly made, old designed, modern furniture and house furnishings. Furniture, paintings, accessories, everything for everything modern. So like Herman Miller and Herman like Miller. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, all all of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I can't even think of the names right now. But I didn't know anything about modernism, really. I liked the furniture. I had bought something. Knoll. So yeah. he's got like Barcelona chairs. Barcelona chairs. You know, new e ones. Eames chairs. Vintage ones. Ames chairs. Yeah. yeah, all that kind of thing. Sure. Which I thought was super cool. Yeah. Okay. So I brought my things in there. Boom. He sold everything. Like, like overnight. So then he said, uh, let's do like a show, like a formal like show, you know, where we have an opening in the shop. And I was like, okay, you know. And there were lots of people there, so many people. And he made a poster and they just sold everything. So was this Sculptures. kind of like a like a meet the artist type of thing too? Or was it? Yeah, were you, were you I was there. there? You yeah. were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I was there. Um, it was like an art opening, you know. Art, I guess. I mean, he's not an art gallery, but everybody bought stuff. Everybody. And I was just like kind of blown away, you know. I didn't even know what modernism was, honestly. And these people were so into it. Then Dave said, you know, that did so well. Why don't we make like a permanent like section for you in the shop? He had these like shelves built right in the middle of the shop. This is in Little Italy. And he had like a permanent like Josh Herman ceramics like area in the shop. And completely unrestricted? Like you could bring in whatever you want yeah, or were they all vases? Or no, like, whatever you made, just bring it awesome. in. That's awesome. Yeah, sculptures, pottery, whatever. Yeah, just, just bring it in, you know. And people were just really into it. And then so I started to learn about modernism, you know. What is modern principles? What is modern design? What What is modern, you know. I mean, all I knew is I liked the furniture. And, and so it turned out that the things that I made were extremely right in the pocket of what modern was, that I was just a natural modern person. My aesthetic was modern. My work was modern. My interest was like a modern, which I had no idea until this all happened. So without making it too pedestrian, what would you describe modernism as? Like in the Cliff's Notes version, like what would define modern? Uh, modern, and, and I'm not, I, I don't consider myself an expert, even this day in modernism. Like I don't consider myself a purist modernist person. I know about modernism. My definition of modern is, is, um, is f uh, form and function, simplicity, uh, s simple use of materials, um, uh, minimalist uh, design, clean, uh, inside and outside flows together. Uh, I don't know. I'm not very articulate about it even to this day. So I don't study modernism. I just know about it because I'm, co I'm collected by the modern community. I just wanted to know how yeah. you feel about yeah. it. Yeah, I think it's clean. A lot of the modern art is abstraction. They love abstract art. Don't you know? Uh, so I don't know. It just fit like perfectly in in there. So I started being collected by modern the modern community, who is very vigorously interested in architecture and their houses. People want to set their houses up in in modernist things, and there's not that many accessories. There's not that much stuff 
you know, to, to put in modern homes. That's a sculpture and, you know, there's stuff was made in the 50s, but there's not, there wasn't that like that, that much like contemporary, like current things. So there was a market for it and we sold a lot of things and, and then being in his shop, I, apparently other modernist shops, owners, and people interested in modern things would go to Dave's shop. I think Dave is pretty well known and Southern California. He's been published as, you know, sort of a modern aficionado, design aficionado. And so a lot of modern people would go through his shop and see my work. And then I started getting phone calls. Would you like to sell in my shop? Would you like to put some things here? Would you like to sell in my shop? Would you like to? And so in not very long and not having done any marketing, I was in shops all over the place, like all over, you know, United States. That's amazing. Yeah. And then I was in like Neiman Marcus and, you know, bigger named shops. And, and then I was picked up by Design Within Reach, which I had mentioned to you. So they placed a very large order and I was then put in their catalogs and I became a designer for Design Within Reach and I, at, at, and concurrently at the time, I designed this, or I was working on this volcanic glaze, a texture glaze, which was a modern kind of thing. And Brian Forward, who was the, the man who sort of introduced me into the modernism, introduced me to Dave, he had suggested, you know, why don't you look at these texture glazes? So I started to look at them and I started developing texture glaze. I took a course a glaze calculation course from uh, a man named Robin Hopper who, had, who wrote the book on like glaze calculation. I went to Canada, it was like a two week intensive on glaze testing and glaze formulation. And I started, you know, he, I learned how to do all of that and, and I started testing this, you know, volcanic glaze. I started working on it. And I started having some success and I started putting it on the pottery and I started to sell it to all these places, you know, that were carrying my things. And by the way, now I was in a shop in Seattle and a shop in uh, Los Angeles. And so all these markets, all the people that were shopping in these shops were being exposed to my work, you know, in these stores. And, and, and this volcanic glaze sort of just became your signature. So the volcanic glaze became my calling card, and people loved it, and I sold a lot of things. And originally, I was hand-making all of the things. So by the time I made, finished making for the shop here, the first shop needed more things. So I had to make, start making for the next shop. Now, you call it volcanic glaze because of its appearance? It looks like volcanic rock and it's porous yes. kind of aesthetic? Yes. It can be called a lot, of, a lot of things. A lava glaze, a texture glaze, a volcanic glaze. I just call it volcanic. I like the word volcanic and I think it fits. It looks so, like volcanic yes. rock. Yes. It looks like a volcanic rock. Yeah. So I, you know, and I was doing a lot of tests, a lot of testing, thousands of tests every night. You know, I'd run tests and run tests. You know, I'd run tests and fire, run tests and fire, trying to figure out what each material was doing in the glaze. 
and I was selling more and more things. Now, the glaze was very difficult to work with, so I wasn't getting like consistent results. So to get one to sell, it was good enough to sell. I might have to make five. So the more work I was getting, the more pressure I was under because I wasn't reliably able to make the pieces. Right. In addition, I, my nature is not to make the same things over and over again. So, and also making pottery, you know, I liked making pottery, but I didn't like making the same things continually. You know, I would get bored. And also pottery wasn't exactly my passion. You know, the sculpture was my passion. Meanwhile, I was selling a lot of pottery with the volcanic on it, and there was a demand for it. So, and I was working out of my garage. I needed a bigger space. I luckily found a space in Little Italy that was like 2,000 square feet that I ended up getting to rent. So I moved from my space, my little two-car garage, which was the teeny-weeny little place, to this space. Now I was able to consider a lot of different options for making the work. I wasn't really that happy, you know, humping to make, and I realized that I wasn't going to be able to, you know, I could only make so many things with my hands. In addition, my father is all about the money. Like, how are you going to make this pencil? Now you've got the big space with the rent. How are you going to pay for it? How are you going to cover the cost? How is this going to make money? You know, it was all about this. How are you going to make the money? If I was really, if I was really sharp at the time, I probably would have stopped it right there. You know, I probably would have stopped this whole thing at that point because... I was, you know, I was enjoying selling all these pieces and I was making a name for myself as like this design person, you know, the ceramics. Um, but there was a lot of pressure because I couldn't make the glazes work reliably and I wasn't really in love with making the pottery, you know, so over and over again. So what I did was, my dad was pushing me, so I looked, you know, I thought about what I could do and I decided to start this slip casting, which is basically taking a handmade piece and making a mold out of it and being able to reproduce it through a process called slip casting. It's a small scale production. There are companies that do slip casting on a large scale production, but you know you need a big facility, proper equipment, lots of staff so forth. So I started small. I wasn't selling, you know, hundreds of pieces. And I was also selling at a higher price point. So it was like heirloom quality. It wasn't, you know, 1999, you know, dinnerware set from Target, right? right? I was Target, selling at yeah. higher end places. Sure. So I started a small scale and I started in that studio. I remember that summer, it was really hot and I didn't know what I was doing. And I got, you know, I tried to mix slip and I was just, I was not familiar with it. I figured out how to do the slip casting, had the molds made, and I started slip casting. And then I filled the order for Design Within Reach, which was a very large order. It's like 100 bowls and 100 of these and 100 of these. Oh, wow. Yeah, 45 of these. I had five people working for me. And, you know, I had to stack, box everything and put it on pallets and bring it to a distribution center. And, you know, it was like the real deal. And I thought, you know, it could become like a big, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen. Well, I bet Dad liked the sound of this. He loved it. 
I remember when I called them and I said I got picked up by Design Within Reach, and you know, it was like a big deal, right? I forget how much the order was. It was over $100,000, you know, to, for the order. And Design Within Reach, their catalog goes to, I don't know how many people, I think it's, you know, half a million every time they send a catalog out. So the fact that I was in the catalog, I was being exposed to a lot of different people. Absolutely. And I was in Ceramics Monthly. Uh, you know, I was an emerging artist, and I was, I was in the New York Times, and I was in Architectural Digest. You know, I was getting exposure everywhere. And, you know, I didn't do any marketing. That was the crazy thing. I had my foot on the brakes. I was trying to keep a lid on it because I was so under the gun. Every time I got an order to make those 100 bowls for Design Within Reach, you know, I might have to fire, you know, 300. I mean, it was a lot of pressure. You know, I couldn't reliably make the product. The glaze is very, very temperamental. It's so, sensitive to temperature, sensitive to application. You know, the materials change. I mean, all kinds of issues. Sure. So what, so where are you from a mindset at that standpoint? Because my, my brain thinks, mm -hmm. okay, well, supply and demand, yeah. right? You got Price a business. goes up. Yeah. So is that when you start saying, well, yeah, you want this stuff, now you're going to pay double for it? Or were you just like, I can't do that? Well, I, so what happened was I sold this, I made this order for Design Within Reach. I thought it was going to just take off. It didn't. Why? I think a couple of reasons. In this country, ceramics is not, it's not on the level it's not a respected medium it's very hard to sell something for five hundred dollars when you can buy the same thing for twenty dollars at target that looks half decent that was made you know in china if you go to japan and you tell someone you do ceramics they start bowing to you you know the ceramics is very respected as an art form and the people that do ceramics are very respected and people will pay you know in kind for you know special things here Absolutely. it's not like that the ceramics is like the lowest people are used to seeing you know the guy on the corner selling the four pound mugs for 14 dollars. so it's hard for people to spend that kind of money on the thing that they would last to put in their house you, when you build a house you have to build the house you, you have to put in you you need pots and pans before you put fancy things on the shelf it's the last thing you spend your money on is the art for the house, right? You, so if there's any money left over after you built your house, you maybe would art. spend something on art, right? So, so, so would you, in a food comparison, mm -hmm. I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but sure. it's almost the Mexican food of, because a yeah. lot of people don't want to pay a lot of money for Mexican food. Yeah, well. I remember, do you ever watch Chef's Table on mm, Netflix? No. Okay, well, you should totally okay. check it out as somebody who's historically into food, but. One of the restaurants in Mexico City, he was like, look, I don't understand why Mexican cuisine can't be expensive. Right. Yep. And this just sort of totally jogs my memory with that. And in, in addition, not only is ceramics just really not, um, it's not valued, it's even in the art world considered not really fine art. I mean, it's lower, it's, you know, the painters look at ceramics, you know, they look down at the ceramics, you know. So ceramics, we, even within the art world, is looked, you know, down on, I Why think. do you think that is? 
Well, until the 1950s, ceramics was not really an art form. It was a functional, it was a functional medium. It was, it was used as cups and bowls and plates, and it was pottery. And Soldner, there's a whole story about and Soldner and how ceramics started to change into you know a non-functional medium, and, and that's a that's a really interesting story, and that's why Paul is one of you know the sort of transformational people in the ceramics world, you know, in contemporary ceramics, because he was in that movement that transformed ceramics into like a like a, a, a non-functional art kind of thing. I was just about S to say, do you think it's it's something to the effect of oh well, you need certain things like a cup yeah so i think it's it, not art i think a lot of it has to do with you know our culture where you know it's practicality like it's you know um what can i use it for what does it do um and and, and like that it's just and it's just hasn't been that long that you know ceramics has been you know Sculptures have been made like this. Uh, uh, I just in an abstract manner. In an a, it, well, abstract or non-abstract, just you know, in an art in an art form. And I think galleries are more used to you know two-dimensional and paintings and things. And sure, it's just not. It's not a. It's changing. You know, it's changed a lot. And there are galleries that are you know trying to to sell things for proper values and higher values. And it's unfortunate, but I people ask me how you know I get higher prices for things, and I say. If a store sells like ceramics, I usually don't want to be associated with it because I try to associate myself more with the design world than I do with, you know, almost the art world or the, you know, ceramics because people are selling ceramics for so cheap um, that it's it just doesn't make sense. So it's about brand positioning. It's a brand position thing, right? I yeah. try to put myself as like a higher end kind of thing, which I feel that you know, that it is, but, um, you know, like design within reach, it didn't sell because they didn't, the, I, I feel that they didn't, um, they didn't brand the work. So people would walk into the stores. They didn't realize that, you know, these things were for sale. They didn't know the story of the work. They thought it, it was merchandising. They thought it was just like sitting, it was like an accessory for the coffee table. To make the, the table look good. Correct. The, the salespeople didn't know what they were selling. And the same thing happened with Neiman Marcus. And it's partially my fault. I could have had a display or a, a leaflet, or I could have gone into stores and met, you know, and educated everyone about my work. And there were things I could have done that I didn't do. So I don't think that, you know, Design Within Reach and Neiman Marcus, I don't think that they, um, you know, marketed the work in a way such that you know, it sold in the numbers that needed to sell to continue doing that, you know. So so eventually, you know, they just it just didn't sell enough at those Do you prices. think that just accidentally got lost on them, thinking that, well, everything in here is for sale and everybody would understand that? Uh I, I think it just it, kind I, of almost subconsciously happened by accident. I guess. I think I guess. I just think when you have a big organization like that, you don't have the attention to detail, the sales people in the store, you know, are more focused on the furniture. They, they just weren't educated to, you know, like a smaller person. And I think it was a big company and it's just one of those things that, you know, attention, the proper attention wasn't put on, on it to make it, you know, sure. to make it work for them. They still use my things and photos that they took and, and they use it like as accessories on, on their furniture in the, in the, you know, uh, 
catalogs, but it just didn't really fly, you know? And I think it needed that, the story. You know, when somebody comes in, they want to know, you know, like, who is this artist and what is the story and, you know, what sure. are they about? And, and that's what creates, you know, the value, I think. Well, I think that's an interesting transition because when I first walked in this morning, we started to go down the path conversationally of, of like inspiration and where you get your stuff from. And, and your answer was pretty intriguing. Oh, that it kind of comes from nowhere. Yes. And, and, and so, you know, now we're getting to like, what, what is my work about? And, and, uh, it's funny, they asked me, yes, yesterday the high school kids came in and they asked me, you know, wh where, how do you get inspiration? Like, where do you get this work? And I said, well, you know, that, that's, that's a really good question because, you know, that, that really is what the work is about. You know, it's like, what am I doing? Is what, is, what is abstraction? When you make something that's totally non-representational, like it's, it's not, there's no, nothing in the world that I think about. You know, where, where do you go to get these forms? It's, well, that's a good question. I intentionally am unintentional about my work. So when I start these pieces, you say, oh, okay, could I have sketched that ahead of time? Maybe. But I try to, I make decisions as I go in an organic fashion. I try to say, okay, let's start with a piece. I might have an idea. I'm going to work in this way with these slabs you know i'm going to use these tools i'm going to try to make something with these you know flat pieces of clay that we call slabs and see what happens that might be as much of my plan as i have and then i start putting things together and and i don't know where it's going right and that's that's cool i mean that's that that's the the unlimited road, you know, it's like you stand in front of the field and you don't know which direction you're going to go. Well, if you go down this way, there's a whole field of possibility that's going to happen. If you go this way, there's, there's like 10 roads you could go in that direction. If you went down this way, you're going you're gonna to see a whole different thing. It's the same thing with clay. If I put this slab in this angle and then I just decide I'm going to put the next slab at this angle, something starts happening. There's possibilities that start happening. There's a vocabulary, there's a piece that starts emerging that I could never have conceived of or preconceived. It's a discovery process, right? So in every moment, in every decision that I'm making, I'm trying to find what my authenticness is, what feels right, what needs to happen with this piece. I see something starting to happen with this piece and then I make decisions as I go and the piece grows and then there's a vocabulary there's something there it continues to grow I keep making those decisions and what emerges is something that I could never have conceived of by my intellectual mind so it comes from a more like subconscious place like a deeper place it you know i feel like i'm tapping into natural energies universal energies um previous experiences that i have emotional content um you know um core beliefs that i have about the world all get expressed in these pieces um i love 
plants. I have plants in my house. I have a garden. I, have, I do fruit trees. I love pruning the trees. I love working with the trees. I find it very relaxing. It's the same kind of thing as working with the, working with the, with the clay. It's all very meditative, it seems. Very, very meditative. It's like a physical manifestation. Yes, yes it's a very meditative process. It's, very, it's, it's a process. It's more about the process itself. It's an evolution. Right. It's right. a growth process that is an unfolding process it's a discovery process and then you know like like this piece behind like how could you how could you you couldn't think of that beforehand you have to like it just would have to emerge sort of from from my unconscious i i, I guess do you think that's because it happens over multiple days like you don't complete one project in one yes. day, so you might come in with a different feeling tomorrow than you yes. have today. Yes, and that it's a very slow process, Clay. Right. <clears throat> and so yes, there's ups and downs. That's what I've been trying to record. You know, I've been doing these videos of my process during these pieces. So yes, there are days that I feel great. There are days that I feel like I can't do anything right. That I'll never get this piece to work. Uh, I am up. I'm down. There's all kinds of. Um, uh, the range of emotions that I go through. Uh, uh, a lot of it is difficulty, uh, struggle, uh, depression, uh, despair. And I think that you can see that in the work, you know. I think that, you know, these are sort of manifestations of, like, inner experiences that I'm having, you know, uh, impulses, pain, uh, sensation, you know, repetitive uh, uh, you know, processes that are happening, you know, inside, you know, my body. Like, people say, I don't feel good. Well, what does that mean? You really, you know, I don't feel good. Like, I have a pressure in my chest. Well, if you tune into that, you, you would see that that is a familiar feeling. Like, it's not random, you know. That, that's systematic to me. And, you know, the, the, that sensation, you know, I can see that in the work. And so, you know, these are my what I'm trying to do is make something as authentic as possible is an authentic expression of who I am on the deepest level as possible in these three-dimensional forms so I'm trying to find my authentic expression my hope is that the viewers would be assisted in finding their own authenticity in being around my work it's really interesting because like I, you've used the terms, you know, pain and mm -hmm. suffering basically mm -hmm. a lot to describe mm -hmm. uh, sort of the, the impetus for these projects. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know how to ask this any other way. Do you, do you ever leave in a better mood? Totally. Yeah, because this, totally. is, this is the epitome of an yeah. outlet for you. Well, what, I, what I've learned is, you know, your experience is it's like a wave. There's nothing permanent about it. So one day you feel could, I could be feeling great, and the next day I could be feeling horrible. And some days the pieces are going well, and sometimes I can't do anything right. And if, if I'm not careful, I can get caught. That can be like a hole, like a spiral, like, oh, I feel really, really down about this. I, I cannot make this work. If I'm not careful, you can, I can get lost in that. It's like a vortex. 
it's like a spiral going down. You know, I feel bad, and now I'm gonna make myself feel even worse and just despair kind of thing. But now, having done this a lot of times, I know that I'm I'm in the wave, right? I'm right now. I'm in like a valley, and you know, tomorrow I'm gonna be in a peak, and so I feel more comfortable in the downs and the ups. Now, like I said, when I'm working on a piece and I solve a problem or I get through some kind of you know, issue in the piece or I finish a piece like that, it's total euphoria to get through the piece and at the end and get through that process. It's like and it's something, lifted. it's like, <laughs> it is like the best feeling, you know, it, it's, it can be really euphoric. So yes, I have a lot of ups, I have a lot of downs, but I'm more comfortable in, you know, in that process of up and down and the struggle of the pieces. That's just sort of like, the, you know, it is the struggle. That's, that's really what it, it, you know, you have to get comfortable in the struggle. You have to sort of like embrace the struggle. I think that that's where, you know, that's where success comes from. Is it comes from struggling. So for me, it's been learning how to just relax with the struggle, relax with the, uh, the discomfort and, you know, the negativity that I may have at any time. And I think working on the pieces works through that. And, you know, it's very therapeutic for me. And, and, and I hope it's, it has some impact on people. I, you know, I want people to feel something when they see my work. I don't want them to think about what is going on here. So, yeah, that, I mean, there's a couple things. One is, I guess that's partly why you don't like to reproduce things over and over and over. Because once you've proven to yourself that you can do it once like you don't feel the need it's not a challenge for you I guess right and this is really a deep exploration of challenging yourself be it emotionally or otherwise yes and just when considering abstract art mm -hmm. it, you know if nothing evokes emotion quite like abstract art you right. either hate it you don't understand it or you love it totally I feel like that's that's why I like abstract mm -hmm. art, just from the simple fact of like, I know what pulls my heartstrings or mm -hmm. just like pumps me up and, mm -hmm. or, or just like completely visually appears to defy physics. And mm -hmm. you're just like, whoa, like mm -hmm. how the hell is that thing made? For mm -hmm. example. Right. Um, if it's just cut and dry and, but then you also have the other side of the coin where mm -hmm. people are like, oh, well that looks like a four year old did it. Right. Okay, fine. That's that's mm -hmm. that's your outlook or your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and everybody responds differently to my work. Like, and that's it, what abstract art does. Yes. If you had thirty people in the room and you said, "What's your favorite piece?" Everybody could, and you had thirty something pieces. Different. Everybody could. Right. It would be a different different piece. And, and I, see, that's I love what I that. think is cool. Yeah. And I'm sure Paul yep. would probably agree. Totally, totally. And 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 I, I totally agree with what you said. And and. When people walk in and see some of my, see it, let's say they see a piece or they see a show, I can see a physical like wave, like hit them. You know, they walk in and they're just like, whoa, you know, like that. You know, you could see that there's like an energy that just kind of rolls through somebody. Absolutely. That that to me is, you know. I don't want to call it success. I was going to say that, that you win. <laughs> yeah, but that, that feels like that is what I, that I like when that happens. That's sure. what I want to have happen. Right. Is that there's a, a tangible felt experience that happens for someone that they can be curious about and, and they can, you know, um, 
watch that unfold, you know, when they're around the pieces. Well, I mean, without sounding cheesy, it's, it's, it's a multitude of approaches, I think, because you know the emotion it took to make it. Mm -hmm. So seeing an emotion or an emotive mm -hmm. reaction out of somebody mm -hmm. is a validation point for you per totally. potentially or anybody. Totally. Um, and I think it's, it's really cool because be it safety in numbers, quote unquote, mm -hmm. you know, we're both being emotional creatures in this, in this space mm -hmm. or misery loves company mm -hmm. i don't know how you want to define it but, yeah well um, it's just yeah I your just, negative emotion might spark something positive in somebody else so then totally. it's that's the therapy right Right, and i don't i don't necessarily see these as like negative you know negative emotion pieces i mean for me Sorry, I, I do I, see I, that miscalculation no, but, verbally. but there, well there is that but I, I i just call it like the authentic authenticity you know um and i, I also think of it as a collaboration with nature you know ceramic is very it's like i think of like fractals you know fractals is why do things happen in nature like when you go to the beach and you see the water comes up on the beach and you see those little waves in the sand that that's like a fractal or, or trees you know the branches they grow differently but it's the same like ratios and the way the branches are growing like that's very interesting to me how that happens in nature or surfers you know they i think I don't want to speak for surfers and I'm not articulate about surfing, but I think that surfers, when they're riding those waves, there's some very profound interaction with n nature and natural forces that's very, um, you know, stimulating. It feels very good for a surfer. It's, it's clay is like that, but it's a, it's a three-week, you know, ongoing, day and night kind of like collaborative process with you know, the natural world and the, for, the, the, the energy of the world that, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's, I don't know, it's very, it's very satisfying, I, I guess, you know. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what my work is. And, and like I said, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make a statement about about the over intellectuality of our culture that I don't think is healthy. <laughs> right, right. And 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 it, it's not, you know, I don't s I see a lot of like there's a lot of conceptual art out there that and I, I I just it's hard for me to really connect with it and um I don't know. I feel like with digital the digital age and digital media and phones that that there's a real need for balance. There's a need for experience, you know, tactile like experience, you know, uh, that we that we're missing, that people are missing these days. And and so I feel like you know, clay in general is is a, you know, can be an activity that 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 provides the more like sensual, real felt experience that that you know is continues to be not not happening <laughs> with more phone usage and more technology so I, I think that this this will become more of a you know more popular art making and uh, physical physical experiences you know cool yeah well um just to focus a little bit more on your business yes. for example yes you've historically had these wholesale accounts mm -hmm. what's your distribution like now well uh 
I mean, I've gone through a lot of like soul searching about the the production. I built basically a brand new website that was focused on selling the production online. And I have, you know, web marketing people, you know, start to set up funnels of customers to, you know, bring them to the website. And, you know, I've questioned, is this worth it? Like, do I want to do this? And I basically, basically said no. You know, I don't want to do it anymore. I really don't want to do it. You know, I thought when I started the production that I could hand it off to other people and I could make my art and I could just let every, you know, um, staff do, make the pieces and fire the pieces and all that. And it's just not proven to be how it can happen. Like, I'm always sucked in. I can't, I don't have the bandwidth to make, be creative and have like a wholesale business going of the pottery. And when I'm dead and gone in 200 years, I don't think that my pottery is going to be, you know, a mark on, you know, the history of contemporary ceramics. I feel that my ability and my passion is being creative and my sculpture. And, you know, doing the production, is, it's, it's taken me away from that. And I, f I found that, you know, although I have business ideas, I, I mean, I'm mathematical. I understand the concepts of business to, to, to a certain extent, not, 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 you know, not on like a profound level or anything like that. I've learned that there's a huge distinction between having business ideas, understanding business, and implementing business. It's two completely different ideas. I mean, it's concepts. Idea it's, and execution. Idea and execution Definitely. could not be further <laughs> yeah. from each other. Mutually exclusive. So I think that I thought that even though I understood, you know, accounting and things and, and, and you know, like marketing, and even though I understood those things, I wasn't happy and I wasn't good at executing those things. It's back to your dad, right? Yes. I have this idea, Dad. Yes. Great. How's it going to make money? Right. Right. And so I think, I, you know, I understand now that I'm a creative person primarily. I'm not a business person. I'm more of an artist. I'm more impulsive. Well, you're definitely an artist. Yes. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an exceptional business person. So what is the structure of the company then? You, do you employ people? I have many? employees, although I have less employees. I, right now I have two employees, my wife... Um, is very good at helping. Uh, she takes the phone calls and she deals with orders and that sort of thing. There, I don't have that many orders at this point. So she's one of the two employees? No. Oh, so she's, she's in addition to the two. I have two that work in the studio with me, helping me. Got it. Now, what are their responsibilities? Just well, loosely. Uh, glaze testing, firing, cleaning, uh, making the tiles. So we're doing the house right now, which they're making the tiles for that, doing the things that I don't have to do. It's a lot of work to, to clean and maintain and fire and mix glazes and test and all of those kind of things. Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to cut it back. Like, honestly, I mean, I'm totally set up to do more slip casting and to, I have the equipment. So it's been very hard. And honestly, my dad was the one who really pushed me to do that. And I feel like this is one of the last, like, remnants of his influence. You know, when you have a business and you have a product and you have the infrastructure, you know, it's hard to just say, you know, like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And, and But I'm 50 years old now, you know. I'm getting older. How, how many more years, vital years, am I going to have left to, to work? You know, when I'm 70 years old, I'm sure I can make things. But, you know, I've got some time to, 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 to be happy, to make what I want to make. And, and I, I think that's what I need to do. I found ways to make money. I've done some real estate. Uh, I, I built a house where I put all of my ceramics in. I have some, done some architectural applications. I've made some things. I do commissions for the decorators and designers, which is okay. I don't love doing it, but, um, you but know, it pays, the, it pays, the it pays, you know? Yeah. Um, so you're finding a multitude of ways to make money yes. in the craft. Yes. Yes. I like real estate and then I like doing houses. It's like doing a big sculpture. There's more money to be had. It's a better milieu of, of, um, uh, you know, financially, it's bigger. People have been asking me to teach classes. That's something I could do is start is start doing some classes in here. Not so much. It's not so much about the money, but I tend to get a little lonely down here. It's a little bit isolating. You know, I have the, you know the girls that work with me, and that, that they're cool to be around. But I think I miss a little of the camaraderie of having like a studio, like an active studio with other people in there. So. Um, uh, I've con considered the, the integration of Clay and Hakomi and, and writing a book and, and doing courses. Uh, but I still haven't spent like consistent time making sculptures, which is what I'm trying to focus on. And I've had some health issues that have limited my ability to work. That I, um, I think this production was a safer place. This is real edgy to do this kind of thing. So the production is a little safer place to be busy, you know, sell some things, and it's not as... Uh, challenging as like being creative on a regular consistent basis so what would you define as being the hardest part of your business what, what's the hardest thing to do it, or is it just thinking about the business aspect is it hiring those two people how do you decipher who to hire who not like what what's the hardest thing you would say even leading up to this point what was the biggest hurdle i'm thinking I don't know. I don't. I don't have an answer. I. I think, you know, the hardest part for me has been the inconsistency of the glaze and and not being able to reliably have a product. You know, it's one. That's why I always had my foot on the gas on the on the brakes because, you know, when I was getting all those stores, I could have been marketing. I could have been pushing. I could have been everywhere. And the but the more that I sold, the more I had to make and the more that I had to make the more pressure I was under to make the, you know to get success out of those places yeah. so that was always a stress and that was always a hurdle it's very difficult to get things right and thus it was difficult to really make profit even if you sold something for $700 if you had to make it five times then you had to give pay sell it for 30 50 percent of what the retail cost is you know is it worth it you know how much money was I really making in the end um so to me, that was like the biggest hurdle was 
was the consistency of the glaze. And then just the struggle of, you know, it's not really making me happy to do the production. It just was not making me happy. And I, I had seen interviews with other potters that had tried to do production. They were like, oh, well, I've been down that road. I'm not doing that. You know, ceramics is a difficult material to work with. It's not easy to do production with ceramics. You know, it's tough. You know, it's a grind. What's the easiest part? I, you know, when I'm working on a sculpture and I'm standing there at the table and I have my tools, I have a knife and I have a rib and I have a bucket of, you know, sloppy clay and, you know, I'm building something. Uh, to me, that's the best for me. Like, the world becomes simple. I, I can get overwhelmed, you know, when I have a lot of things going, uh, things I can get thrown off and just feel like it's all too much. Then I can, can get frozen. When you're making a sculpture, it's like you're in that world and it's a simple world. It's your knife, it's the clay, and it's, and that's it. And I like, I could just, and there's nothing else at that time, you know, and, and, and I think that you know, a day can go by. It's five o'clock. So what? It's five o'clock. You've been doing that for. I've been doing this for six hours. What? Uh, that's you've been riding the wave. Yeah, you've been riding the wave. That's that you, you've been meditating. It's like a meditation for that time. I think that's that's really the, you know, the juicy. It's easy. It's like life becomes simple. You know, right. And I think that for me, that's that's a good thing. Advice. Anybody who's in school right now looking to do it, what advice would you give those people? Experimentation, experiment. Don't take it too serious. You don't have to make, you know, a Picasso. You're not going to make a Picasso. You know, don't care too much about what you make or what it is that you're doing at any given moment. Like, experiment. Try this, try that. If, if you're an artist, if I was starting classes, it would basically be about experimenting and experimenting with your experience. Make something big, make something small, make it fast, make it make slow. See how you respond to all these different stimuli. Uh, you know, discover who you are as an artist. You know, pay attention to your experience as you try different things. And it's the same thing. Are you trying to, you, what is your career? What do you want to become as a person? You know, you have to pay attention to your experience. How do you react? How do you respond to things? If you pay attention, you can know, um, you know, I love being a business person. Like, I love the process of making a product and selling the product. You know, like, how are you in that process? You know, how do you feel about it? And try different different things and see, you know, use use your experience as, like, a guide for, you know, discovering who you are as an artist, as an entrepreneur, you know, or what it, whatever it is that you're, you, you want to do is you have to try different things and experiment and, and, and it will be a struggle. That is the nature. I think that's the nature of, you know, being a human is there is struggle in that process and struggle doesn't mean it's a failure, you know, and failure doesn't mean that, you know, you're going to continue to fail. So I think that's, that's, you're experimenting, there's failures, there's struggles, and you have to embrace, you know, that, that exploration process to find, you know, what is, 
you know what is you know the best thing for you to do whatever that whatever that is you know well okay so you used to play sports yes you're now a father yeah how many kids two kids two kids mm-hmm when you're not in here in the studio, <laughs> what are you doing? What do, is, do you have any other outlets? What do you do for fun? Well, my son is an athlete, coincidentally. Well, no, it's not coincidental. He's my son. He's a good athlete. And so I usually leave the studio at like 3 o'clock or 2 o'clock. He gets out of school. And then, I, then, it's, his, then it's his sports. You know, I'm his advocate. I'm his manager. You know, I'm his coach. Uh, I mean, it's been amazing. He plays basketball. He's really good at basketball. He did play tennis. He, he stopped playing tennis, but he was very talented at all those things. So I, I work with him uh, a lot. Uh, my daughter is very bright. She does uh, theater. She's the stage manager for the productions at her school, and she's very self-motivated as a student. Typically, my wife you know, focuses on her activities, and I focus on Isaac's activities just because we're, she's better suited for Gabby and I'm um, with Isaac. So a lot of my time is spent being a dad, um, wor- being with my kids, trying to be a good dad, um, you know, working with him to, 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 to be the best that he can be as, an, as, as, a, uh, as a person, you know, as an athlete. Uh, you know, other things that I enjoy, I would say the plants. I have a garden at the house. I really love working with the plants. Every day I'm up in that garden. I have fruit trees. I have exotic fruit trees that I, that I grow and I shape and I prune. And, and I love doing that. It's very much like doing ceramics, except a little more relaxing. I don't have to do as much. I can just kind of, you know, guide things. So I love the plants. I love, um, I like watching sports. I'm a big Knicks fan. I you know, I like guy things. I'm into cars. Like I have a pickup truck that I like driving around. I used to love my motorcycles, but now being a dad, I, I, I can't do that anymore. You know? So I think my wife would, you know, need to take like some kind of stress medication if I had a motorcycle. So I've always wanted anymore. to ride motorcycles. Yeah. And I think every woman I've ever dated has always told me they would break up with me if yes. I bought a motorcycle. Yes. <laughs> yes. Basically. Well, yeah. the, the old adage of there's two types of motorcycle riders, those who've been in accidents and yeah. those who will be. Exactly. So I've always kind of had that in the back of my mind. Yeah. And uh, I'm cool with it. You know, <laughs> I, I let the motor, I had a whole life of motorcycles, so I'm cool with letting that go. Sure. Um, what other cars do you have? Well, I used to have a Porsche. I used to have a, I used to have a, um, a 911. Uh, it was like a 2003, you know, with the, with the, with the bad headlights, the egg the headlights. The 996. Yeah, I had a 996. It was a convertible that I bought, you know, for like 25000 or something like that. Remanufactured engine. It was totally sweet, you know, manual transmission. I used to take it out with Isaac in the back and just oh, that's awesome. tear it up in Dilzor. I loved it. I ended up selling it a couple years ago. Um, so I don't have, and I'm a car guy, but, you know, I just have the pickup truck. I don't know. I'm, I'm due for a new pickup truck. I was thinking like, oh, maybe I'd get a Raptor or some like fun pickup truck. You know, that was like cool like that. You know, Isaac would love that. So I don't know. Maybe I would do something like that. But uh, and I love I used to have a Ford Bronco, like a 1971 oh, Ford yeah. Bronco, like a redone Bronco. Yeah, I love those like that would be, you know, that would be a s- awesome like second car. So, you know, it's a money thing, though. If I, if I could, I'd Isaac's like, well, if you could, would you get a brand new 911 and 
And I say, well, yeah, maybe, but yes. not more, not, but not, <laughs> but not, not more than that. Like, I don't want to, he's right. like, why don't you get a Lambo? And I was like, no, I'm never driving a Lambo. I don't care how much money I had. I wouldn't drive a Lambo, but a 911 that, that I could swing, you know, a 911. Sure. So, um, no, I like cars. I love fishing. I take Isaac fishing. We go fishing in Alaska. I take him in the last couple summers. We do go for a week in, in Alaska. I just took him down to, uh, Sea of Cortez, north of Cabo. We went fishing. So we, we do that. Yeah, so we do a lot of things together. I have a shotgun. I take him out to the range. We shoot sometimes. And he's been getting into that. And, you know, guy things. So I like movies. I, I'm a foodie. I like good food. You know, Rachel's cooking really good food all the time. So I was going to just ask We do a lot of good food. A lot of good food. What, is there a particular cuisine you gravitate towards? Um, I like Asian cuisines. Like, I love Japanese. I, I like Thai but I, I'm not exclusive to Asian. I like Asian, and Isaac loves Asian. He loves sushi. Um, but I like all kinds of food. I love Italian. Uh, I like Mexican. I really like all kinds of foods. Growing up in New York, and I lived with my dad, we didn't cook anything. We had a stack of menus, you know, two inches thick. And it was like, okay, what are we going to order for dinner tonight? Oh, you know, order Afghani food? Okay, sure. Well, that's order it up. You that's know? New York for you. So you have I was, that at, in your backyard. Totally. You, know? you got everything under the sun totally. in New York City. Yes. So I've been eating a lot of different kinds of foods. And I've traveled. I've been to India and I've been to the Japan and China and I've been to a lot of places. So I, I enjoy all those cuisines. I love, I love food. So food's a big, a big thing that I love. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's a good life. I mean, as you get older and you're, you know, you're a dad and, and, um, uh, you know, you have your kids and that, and, and you're married, and, you know, that takes up a big chunk of your, your time. I don't have a ton of friends. I mean, I know a lot of people, but pretty much busy with the kids. And, you know, I have a studio. It's, it's some, like, associated people, that, you know, you, like through, you know, your work and, you know, real estate. And, you know, I have people, but I don't have a lot of, like, best friends that I pal around with. I'm mostly with Isaac and Rachel. That's awesome. Yeah. So life is, it's, it's simple. It's full. And you know, I, you, I tell young people that don't have a family, you know, I said, it's okay. You're, you're, you're a guy. As soon as you're going to have kids, you're going to be just another schmuck on the back of the bus. Trust me. (laughs) And that's what it's going to come down to. And, uh, I always get a kick out of that, but, um, Oh man, this has been great. Yeah. Uh, Again, thanks for for having me here in studio. Yeah, and, no, uh, it's been great. Showing me all that you got going on. I'm going to post some photos on the Instagram page, of course. Thanks so much, man. No, thank you. I enjoyed it. You know, it's it's always nice when someone's interested in you and you, you know, get to tell your story and so that's that's always that's a cool thing. So, and thank you for your your interest and giving me some space to, you know, be narcissistic and talk about myself for two hours this (laughs) this has been awesome yeah cool well really appreciate it okay and uh yeah hope to catch you soon okay okay thanks see ya wanted to send out another quick thanks to josh for the great chat there in his studio thank you so much for sharing on such a personal level as well as shedding some light on topics a lot of us try to sort out ourselves especially the brand perception and certainly how it is you go about your own creative process. Really appreciate you sharing all those details. Season one has truly been a blast, and I can't thank all of you enough for listening. Season two's recordings have already begun, so stay tuned for those to be shared soon. 
As always, thanks to Clear Audio for the headphones, as well as Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the music and for making these podcasts possible. I really hope you guys have enjoyed this as much as I have creating these, so please feel free to drop me a line with any feedback whatsoever at standardhpodcast at gmail.com. Keep an eye out for the new episodes in a few weeks because there's some really good stuff on the horizon. That's all for now. Stay tuned and I'll catch you guys very soon.